Good morning. Today's New Testament reading can be found in your Pew Bible on page 1019, and it's Acts 15, 1 to 12. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders of God had done among the Gentiles through them. In our Bible, I will be reading Luke 15, 17 through 24, page 965. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You've just heard two passages that I'll be spending a lot more time with as the next uh, bit of the service unfolds. I want to thank Lee Ruggles for playing piano for us today. We uh, are awfully dependent on a talented few and when they're gone, it's a scramble to find help, and uh, Lee was gracious enough to step in. We're glad for that, Lee. Thank you. Also, wanted to point you to the front of your bulletin. Um, this one, I don't think, is as good as last week's. I can say that, having done them both. But I wanted to take a minute with our acrostic in the form of this Scrabble game and talk a little bit about the words involved. Kind of here on the left, vertically, is family, which is our theme. 
last week, this week, and in the weeks to come. And my title last week was F is for family, but this week it's A is for acceptance, the second letter in that acrostic, and so acceptance is the dominant word. There are other A words that we could really talk about in terms of family, especially church family. We could talk about affirmation and what a powerful role that plays in family. We could talk about... um, Attitude, and that is actually one of the words there uh, vertically as well. So I could, I had many, many to choose from, and uh, any of you are out there Sue Grafton fans? Oh good, then you know where I'm getting my titles from. I'm glad to hear it. I never knew Santa Paula was a real town until I uh, heard her novels. So. Anyway, the rest of you left out too bad, just... A little bit of trivial reading there, and you'll be right up to speed. Uh, Some of the words here, though, uh, really apply. I I think warm is one of the features that we look for in family, isn't it? We need not only uh, affection and affirmation, but warmth. There's something about family life that ought to, if it doesn't, lend itself to that. We think of home and hearth. That's the term we put together, and hearth refers, of course, to the fires that burn, And the fires are that which prepare our meals and that which warm us. And warmth is one of those intrinsic notions in family. There's a little word there, see. It's not worth very much in Scrabble, but it's worth a lot in family life. I know that some of us more than others, but many long to be seen. You think about your teenagers or going through those years yourselves, a lot of your issues probably boil down to being seen. And another way of expressing that would be to say, I don't think my parents understand me in this way, that way, or the other way, or my friends, or my teacher, or whoever. Now, fortunately here, I believe that we have a lot of seeing parents, and certainly we have some wonderful youth staff and others who contribute to helping to see our young people for who they are. But we all want to be seen. We all want to know that we're known and accepted and loved and recognized in the context of family. That's a very important word. I've put the word partner. Now that could refer to husband and wife, but partnerships are key in family life to get anything done. We call them roles. And there's no right prescribed way for those to to unfold. We work those out in family units as we move forward according to what makes the most sense in the circumstances we find ourselves. We partner with one another. There's a word there, use, or I didn't have room for useful or usefulness or any of those kinds of things, and it could be pronounced use, which might have a negative connotation. We don't want to, quote, use one another. That would be a negative connotation. But we do want to be useful to one another. We each have a purpose. We each have a use. We each have a place. There's a nice word down at the bottom left that I like called zeal. We don't use that word much. It's found in our Bibles in several places. Jesus said, zeal for thy house has consumed me. We would never speak like that. It's King James English. But it means enthusiasm. Tremendous enthusiasm. 
And it's the root word for zealot, one who's almost overly enthusiastic. It makes a big deal of difference when we find people in family life who are passionate about caring for family. I've put Zion as a couple of reference points for me, may have others for you. Certainly there's the beautiful National Park, but I'm thinking more along the lines of Zion as the name of the holy city. It's at first an alternative for the name of Jerusalem, but it really, in my mind, connotes the new Jerusalem, heaven. Zion, city of our God. It is the place where God and his, and his people live. It's a place of joy. It's a destiny for family. It's a goal. And it's a family all of its own. If you saw The Matrix, and I've used that as a reference before, Zion is the city where natural-born humans live. Not batteries. Not people living in a plugged-in fantasy world. But natural-born humans. And people who've been freed. They live in Zion, the down where the earth is still warm toward the core. They live without a sky. But it's come to mean something very important in all of that. There are lots of modes of living in this society in which we, modes of being, but the family mode is one of kindness and one of relation or kin. It's one of affirmation. It's one of equality. It's one where we exalt God and lift up one another and come to one another's aid, where we solve problems together, where we move forward. So I wanted to just take a minute, in case you hadn't appreciated uh, the connection of these words to our theme and to uh, the sermon, to just, just spend a few minutes on that with you. There are a lot of things in life I don't know, suffice it to say. And when it comes to the really big questions theologically, they're big questions because there are answers that come from many corners and multiple opinions and sides. It's not easy to know for certainty some of the things that we would like to know. And if we do place certainty around it, it's because we've accepted certain uh, facts that lead up to those conclusions to be true. I know I'm speaking a bit in riddle, but what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to the weightier matters sometimes, some of the theological pieces that I I can't get my mind around, at the end I have to say I, I don't know. When it comes to places and times in which there were no human witnesses, I can say I don't know. And if I think about the place of religion in society today, sometimes it's easy to say, it's so complex, how can I know? So I try to preach those things that I do know. And what I do know is that among the many things that make a great deal of common sense in Scripture, the notion of family is among the greatest. There's a wonderful film called About a Boy, and I hate to have all my references be to movies today. I know not everybody likes movies. 
How many of you watched About a Boy at some point or another? Just be honest. Let me know. It's a, it's a good film. There's nothing to be... A, okay, we really don't have a TV and movie crowd, do we, at all? Okay, not at all. It's a story of a very self-absorbed Englishman who inherits the fortune of his father who wrote a song, a particular annoying Christmas song, that gets played so many times that the royalties keep him in luxury without him ever having to work. He drives an Audi. He breaks his day down into units. Manicure, getting his hair done, his back massaged, whatever. It's a life of luxury, and he has no meaning and purpose. And he meets a kid who's kind of this outcast hippie kid whose mother is a bit of a nutter, to put it in the English uh, there, And she is definitely a full-blown hippie, but she suffers from depression, severe depression. And the story unfolds with this boy who's harassed at school, whose mother tries to commit suicide, and somehow this boy comes into Hugh Downs' life, this self-absorbed, this completely narcissistic person. And he is made aware, all of a sudden, that there is a world beyond his little self-created world with his perfect stereo and perfect TV and perfect flat and his you know, wonderful car and his nice little restaurants that he goes to and this sort of selfish, insular life that he's created for himself. He realizes that maybe somebody needs him and he resists it at every turn. But this boy is oddly persistent and insists on knocking on his door and interjecting himself into this man's life. This boy has a heart and it's crying out for something beyond because he knows, the boy knows, even though he's young, he knows that family counts, but that even family in today's world isn't enough. So as the story unfolds, you see these people coming together from disparate walks of life, this odd, eclectic group form over time. It's a fabulous story to see unfold. People who actually start to learn to care about and for one another and to grace one another with the gifts that they can bring to the table. It's not a movie about church, but it should be. By the end of the movie, you see this motley crew celebrating a holiday together in their rough-and-tumble style, with all of their flaws and all of their weaknesses, and yet somehow found having found strength as they have come together. And the boy makes a very insightful commentary. He says, I realize today in life, family's not enough. A person's not enough. You need backup. You need backup. You need to know there's a group, a tribe, somebody who's got your back. I think he's right. I think he's absolutely hit a nerve in society today. If the church would take it upon itself to assemble Motley Crews and be their backup, the gospel would become accomplished. Family isn't enough. That is to say, nuclear family, parent and child. We need more than that. We need backup. We need one another. Because I know this to be true, because I see this in the world in which I live, because the gospel speaks to it in very plain terms, 
I bring it to you. It's something that, among the many ethereal things we could talk about, events future and not yet realized, events past that require certain interpretations, beginnings and endings that are revealed to us, but not experienced yet by us. Because there is so much that we could talk about in the abstract that's wonderful, stimulating stuff, but maybe falls in a different category, I bring you something that I hope you can all just wrap your hands around, your minds around, like I, I'm trying to do with this. And that is that God's family is that backup. It's that larger network. It's that bigger piece. It's that thing we can plug into. It's that place where we ought to belong. So let's start with A is for acceptance. And let's start with a very familiar story in Acts that we just had read to us. And I'm going to give you a modern analogy because I think it will finally hit with you what it is that's going on here. I've done this one before and I want to be very clear about this. I'm not trying to goad you politically. I'm not trying to make a statement as a voter of a particular party. I'm bringing it up because it is today's equivalent in terms of emotional content to what was going on back then and we have no care or concern for it. There isn't a person alive that I know of here today or anywhere except perhaps in in Judaism who cares, maybe a health worker or something, about circumcision. It's not one of society's hot topics. You can find it if you look it up. We all know what it means, but it's meaningless today, culturally, unless you're Jewish. And even then, it's not the issue it once was. This is not a hot topic. I could talk biblically about circumcision for a long time, and I've done sermons that relate to that before, and you'd walk away and go, well, that was irrelevant. And you have. You just haven't told me. Pastor, thank you. That was irrelevant. Have a nice day. You're so kind. I do appreciate that. It's irrelevant. But what is relevant about the story is acceptance. Family. You have a group of people who come to know God through a patriarch. That patriarch understands that the sign of his connection to this living God is in his flesh. The males will be circumcised. That will be the mark of the connection between he and God. And it will be the mark of God's ongoing promise to fulfill in him in succeeding generations what he has said he would fulfill. To make of them a great nation and to call them his people. Circumcision becomes the mark of belonging to the people of God. And then it's added to as time goes by. The law is given. And the law of Moses is added to the law that's given. And other things become defining marks of a people. Keeping kosher. And all that that entails. And of course the commandments and the sacrificial system. And we could go on. Even down to the place, the prescribed mountain on which... The temple must exist and worship must take place. All of these go into belonging. 
you want to be accepted into this family, it's possible, but there's a process. First, it doesn't matter how old or young you are, circumcision is the order of the day. Then there is training in proper living. That is to say, we have to learn to do all of those things that go into kosher. We need to know who God is, learn intellectually the Torah and the scriptures and the law especially. For the law of the Lord is a delight and a joy. And finally, there's the mikvah, the cleansing, the passing through, the rebirth, what we would call a baptism, emerging from one type of being out of the pool into another, from Gentile now to Jew. And the transformation is complete. And after all of those steps, we can say there's acceptance. The New Testament time has come. Christ has lived and spoken. And the question comes up, does a person need to be a Jew in order to be a Christian? And all kinds of people want the answer to be yes. There's a lot politically at stake. And why would we want to give someone else an easier path than we've had to endure? A lot of the miseries, by the way, in academics and medicine and other places are there because the previous generations had to endure those miseries and they delight in passing them on. Think about it. And in Acts, the apostle argues, why would we ask somebody to carry a yoke that we ourselves have been unable to bear? We haven't even been able to handle it. Good question. Christ made it very simple. And the Spirit made it very clear. When the Spirit came upon Gentiles who believed, John 3.16, who believed, and the Spirit through those Gentile believers did miraculous signs and works and showed evidence of God's power and presence, it became immediately clear to some that you didn't have to have your foreskin removed, that you didn't need to have kept kosher, that you didn't necessarily have to have been the recipient of the law and Moses' law in order to receive the grace of God. There's a privilege with all of that, to be sure. And Paul argues that in Romans. If you haven't heard it, it's a very eloquent argument. But it's no longer a requirement. Now let me give you the contemporary analogy that I know some of you think is my personal political statement, but I, I think it, what I'm really, if you'll listen to me, I'm not trying to make a political statement as much as I'm trying to help you understand the emotion of it. Having a person go from Gentile life to being accepted in Christianity is tantamount to letting somebody, anybody who can get across our southern border, be an American. If you think about it, what we want people to do is apply for a visa, enter the country legally. Once they're here legally, go through appropriate processes to get green cards. Once they have that, to take appropriate citizenship classes in order to pass the citizenship test. We want them to pay taxes 
to work in legal jobs and to be legally present here. That, that is the pervasive feeling. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Just so I'm clear. This is all part of the legal process. And if you wanted to be one of the chosen and part of the family of God, then you needed to be circumcised, you needed to be educated, you needed to learn the law, you needed to learn how to eat and how to wash and what not to do on the Sabbath day, and then you needed to go through the bath and then you could become one of God's chosen. And what happened in the New Testament was the Spirit fell on both parties. And it became evident that grace had called them all into family. Now, I'm not asking you to reconsider a political position here. I'm telling you that emotionally it's difficult for us to get our, our heads around the circumcision issue. It's not important to us. We have no way of understanding how that might have felt to Jewish believers. But we are Americans, and we do know what that feels like. And we do know what the current immigration debate feels like. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's an apt one. And for your consideration, that is the kind of energy that was going into the circumcision debate. Do I become a Christian before I, I mean a Jew before I can become a Christian? The answer came down on the side of acceptance. Acceptance. In our second story, and it's a powerful one too, in our second story, we have a lost coin. It's a dowry coin, and the woman goes and looks for it diligently sweeps her house, lights a lantern, does everything she has to do to find it. And when she finds it, she rejoices. She invites her friends, I found my dowry coin. You have another story of a lost sheep. There are 99, there are 100 sheep, but one is missing, and the shepherd goes in search of it. Because he knows what's going to happen to that sheep out there. Because every sheep is precious. And what Philip Keller says that not many people realize is because the shepherd also needs to eat lunch. That's a sobering thought. Now, 99 is there, but he goes in search of the lost sheep. And then there's the lost son, and now it starts to hit home. He's not the oldest, he's not the priest of the family, he's not the main heir, but he's entitled to a share, and he goes to his father in a highly unorthodox move, and says, I want my fortune now. The father obliges, gives him a son. The boy leaves the country, pursues his own way, and like many of us, by the way, statistically, if all of us won the lottery in two years 99% of us would be broke. Because we just don't know how to manage. Most of us don't. So when this kid received this large amount of money, all of the vultures came in. People who wanted to hang out with him for his money. People who wanted to invest it for him. People who wanted to be his friend and show him the way. 
We like to characterize him as a poor moral character, wasting it on drink and prostitutes, and maybe he did some of that, I don't know. But the kid finds himself as a Jew feeding pigs and eating their scraps. Nothing could be lower. Nothing. This is the ultimate sinking, the ultimate bottom. This is the, the worst. And in this depraved state, as any Jew would understand it to be, thoroughly depraved state, and disgraced state, and disinherited state, he says to himself, my father's servants have it much better than I. Maybe he'll take me as a slave. What he doesn't know is that every day the father has gone out, every day the father scans the horizon looking for his son. Every day hope springs eternal only to be crushed as dusk comes and the child remains gone. But one day he's not gone. One day the vestige of a boy once known is seen in the distance. It's a little thinner. Color's not too good. Clothes don't look very good. But it's unmistakable that's the boy. And the father can't contain his joy. Sprints down the road. Doesn't stop. Just smashes into his son. And as they collapse in this tackle on the ground, he's kissing his neck. This filthy, stinking child who's just wasted an inheritance who's just lived in squalor and he's unclean. He's unclean. Doesn't belong. Brings the boy home. Gives him his credit card. Signet ring. Puts a robe around him until he can be cleaned up, bathed, and cared for. Orders a calf, fatted calf, butchered so that they can eat the best of foods. <coughs> it's a filet mignon night <laughs> with butter and potatoes in the trimming. <coughs> There's a celebration, joy in the household. Older son gets the bad rap. At least that's how I feel as an older son. And that's a whole other story, by the way. I'll give it to you briefly. The older son is bitter because he stayed and worked and done everything his father asked him to do. And yet the father's never killed the fatted calf for him. What's wrong with that story? What's wrong with that answer? Do you know? The father's answer is the key. Son, he says, everything I have is yours. There's nothing left that doesn't already belong to the one who stayed. He could have killed a fatted calf and celebrated with his father any time. He never understood his value and his place in his own home. 
Neither son know their place. Neither son has a clue about how loved and beloved they are. The older son believes that his father has been chief with him or believes that he is not loved in the same way that the disobedient <coughs> prodigal, as we call him, son, is loved and loved. Prodigal has come home believing himself to be nothing better than a slave and willing to do the slave's work in the household in order that he might eat something decent and have a place in the straw to sleep. <coughs> Neither know their place. They are both acceptable to the Father and accepted by the Father. They are both loved. They are both affirmed. Something so powerful about this story, so emotional, because we invariably come to the Father from one of these two places or something akin to them. We've been the responsible one. We've been the good one in the family. We've always done what we were told. My wife and Dr. Teal like to joke about how many wasted opportunities they had in their, good, in their goodness as teenagers, not rebelling as they didn't. In one category or another, maybe you're the prodigal and you've lived a life of waste. Family is that place where acceptance comes where there's an affirmation, where you are known and valued, where the Father can call you his beloved. And our job is to be back up to a world, a church, a community, a city, that doesn't know that truth. It hasn't yet understood but A is for acceptance. A is for affirmation. A is for an attitude that says, I belong to another beside myself. I belong to a God who made me and redeemed me and declared that I was, in fact, my brother's keeper in relationship to a world around me. It's a lot to take in. But this I know to be true. And so I pray that as we explore in the year to come, whatever that may hold economically, whatever that holds for us socially, whatever challenges that brings to our lives personally, that we will learn to uphold and bless one another. That we'll learn ever more to be a faithful family we'll all kick in and do our parts, that we'll come together with an attitude of praise, an attitude of service, an attitude of affirmation, an attitude of acceptance, that we'll grow together in grace, that we won't be divided by the arguments that threaten to divide the church in acts. What's required? Let's this year just look and see where the Holy Spirit is working and blessing. 
where his mighty deeds are taking place. And let's join that. Be a part of that in service. Let's be a part of that fellowship. Let's be a part of that grace. And so, Lord, in humility, we ask that you continue to walk with us and teach us your way, reminding us of our faithfulness and call in family life to one another, to our community, and most of all to you. We thank you for your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.